Amen. Thanks, Lou. Um, thanks to the worship team. Thanks for being sensitive. Um, it's an important part of leading worship is uh, not rushing sometimes and just waiting and letting things go where the spirit is going. I really appreciate when uh, uh, the guys, the band are receptive to what the spirit is doing and, and uh, are obedient. It's important, isn't it? It's good. Right. Morning, church. My name's Miles. I'm the senior leader and pastor of the church. If you haven't seen me before, hello, good morning to you. Uh, we are, you may, have, you may have noticed Christmas is coming, some of you may not care, but uh, it is, we can't avoid it this time of year, although um, I've always had a bit of a thing, because I know in some church circles there's more and more rejection of this season, it's commercialized, it's all about Santa Claus, it's demonic, there's lots of things that people say, right? There's lots of people. Somewhere in the mix of that though, here's my thought, let's not miss the opportunity Okay, in our culture, there is a time where you can talk about Jesus really well because it's what's going on. Like, let's use Easter, use Christmas. Yes, Easter, fluffy bunnies, chocolate eggs, blah, blah, blah. Talk about Christ. Give it back its reason, church. Can I just say, don't reject it, make use of it. It is an ideal opportunity for the gospel. Let's take it back. Let's claim it back. Rather than giving up on the season, let's celebrate the birth of Christ. Let's proclaim it for what it is, and let's make use. Anyway, there's my little side note. That wasn't on my talk for today. came into my head, but it's something that I'm a little bit passionate about. We are starting a little sort of Advent series, and uh, I've got the title this morning of The God Who Saves, and what we thought would be fun to do would be to have a bit of an overview back through Scripture. We know Jesus came to be the light of the world. We know he came to save, to redeem, to set free the captives, to die on the cross for our sins so that we, again, could have a relationship with God because our sins were wiped away, right? We know why Jesus... So we know that's... And Jesus was very clear, was he not, to say, I only do what I see the Father doing. I have come to show you the Father. He said it over and over again, that my life, my words, my actions would all be about revealing my heavenly Father. Well, if that's the truth, and we believe it is, we should be able to see the nature of God through the Old Testament. We should be able to find that same nature. God hasn't changed. The saving God of salvation, the God who saves, both in Christ examples, but in the Old Testament, in his, how he dealt with people, should still be there. And sometimes I think we read the Old Testament and some of us might have a bit of a thought about it, that it's a bit, it's a bit sort of like a bit harsher. It's a bit more black and white. It's a bit more, there doesn't appear to be as much grace or as much forgiveness. But actually it's there. It really is there. Yes, there were some times and seasons where the people were given commands to be obedient to, to go and to do things. But the God of grace did it because of his nature and because fundamentally of who he is and because of what he was up to. So let's have a look at a few examples. And I've just... Pretty much randomly, uh, I say randomly, I apologize. The Holy Spirit led me to, that's a much better statement, isn't it? Honestly, honestly. The Holy Spirit led me to a few stories in Scripture that just felt like good places to go this morning and just to pull out some of these truths together. So go with me on the journey, yeah, church family? Let's see if we can't learn something this morning about the nature of our God that maybe we didn't hold quite right, maybe we need a bit of revelation on, maybe we need reminding of, drawn back into, and that's sort of the fun of, uh, of these times together. And um, this isn't knowledge for knowledge's sake. This should never be that. It's not just information, is it? It should never just be information. It should be life-changing, life-giving, life-affirming, revelatory. Yeah, that's always what should be coming from the pulpit, I think. As, as a church family, I hope we do that well. 
Uh, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, that's just interesting, I didn't know that, but there should always be something in there that's like, that I need to, that impacts my life. I can make decisions on that, I can hold truth on that, I can stand on that, I can take that away and know it's the, the God of goodness. So let's do that together. We're, um, we're going to start in Jonah and, uh, and Nineveh, and I had a clicker, which I've left on the chair. Hands are moving, nothing's finding. Um, very quick recap, uh, Jonah's a, an Old Testament prophet, he has his own book called the book of Jonah, it's only about four chapters long, we refer to Jonah as a minor prophet, I think it's unfair, all that means is really he's got a small book where some of the other ones have got much bigger books, so Isaiah would be a major prophet, but really actually prophet is prophet, right? There is something about who they are. We just have a lot smaller story on Jonah, so he's sort of in, in a batch of these smaller prophet stories that we have. Uh, and at the same time, obviously, what we know about Jonah and the revelation that he brought is m- more defined. So, in fairness, we know a bit less. So, there we go. So, major, minor, eh, he's a prophet. Prophet of the Lord. God saw fit to put the four chapters of Jonah in the Bible. Therefore, we can learn from it. Therefore, it is good for teaching, rebuking, instruction, and for our guidance, is it not? Jonah um, is sent by God to condemn the city of Nineveh. Uh, The city of Nineveh is the capital of the Assyrian Empire. This is um, Israel's bitter enemies. Uh, Jonah is a prophet of the one true God. He is a Jew. He's an Israelite. Uh, He has no interest in going to Nineveh and spending any time with the mortal enemies of his people. Neither does he necessarily want to go there because he doesn't want to see them, but he also has a funny sneaking suspicion that God might do something different to what God says he's going to do. He's been commanded to go and condemn the city, but he runs away from this challenge that God gives him. Jonah, as we know, the story, he gets on a boat to Tarshish. This is about as far as he could go in the opposite direction. There's a storm. It gets revealed that uh, Jonah is the problem. God is, I mean, this wasn't a natural storm. The fish, the, 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 you know, the seafaring men knew this was a biblical storm in that very context of the word. This was uh, something ungodly, something incredible, something that only something of, of the gods could have done. Ungodly is the wrong word. It's a godly storm. Uh, and uh, they come to this conclusion that one of them must have done something wrong. They cast lots. It falls on Jonah. Jonah says, throw me in the sea. So he essentially commits suicide. I mean, he puts his blood on their hands, although they throw him in saying, don't blame us for throwing him in, God, the God that we are trying to appease. They throw him in. Sea calms. Jonah gets eaten by a big fish, spends three days in the belly, eventually gets... Eventually, he, now, here's the thing. He prays, doesn't really apologize you read Jonah's story, eh, there's still some holding back in this man. He's like, nah, I'll do what you said, I'll go. There's no great apology, there's no great, like, you know, he's like, well, I'll go. I'll go because you told me to. He gets vomited up on the beach, not so far from Nineveh, and he eventually turns up in the city. And then even then, he uses about five Hebrew words, like maybe about a sentence of about seven words. He just says, uh, really simply, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed, right? The city is about 120,000 people. It apparently is going to take him about three days to crisscross this city and get this message out. And he doesn't give the context of why. He doesn't give the context of who. He doesn't even explain that it's his God that's going to do it. He doesn't give any more detail than he absolutely necessarily has to. He is obedient, but you can tell it's begrudgingly. And it's this tiny little sentence of like, 
Well, you can imagine he almost, I mean, it says he shouts it, but I can imagine now and then he was mumbling it a few times. He was coughing through it and like, you're going to be destroyed. <clears throat> like, you know, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to be here. I don't like you. I don't like what God might do. And so we get to this incredible bit of story. And I'll read a little bit from where we're up to. So Jonah chapter 4, verse, um, I'm going to read verse, chapter 3, verse 4 through to the beginning of chapter 4, if you want to follow along with me. So chapter 3, verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people of Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast. They put on burlap to show their sorrow. And when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robes, he dressed himself in burlap, and sat in a heap of ashes. Verse 10. And then God saw what they had done and how they'd put a stop to their evil ways. He changed his mind. He did not carry out the destruction he had threatened. And then chapter 4. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry, filled with unfailing love. And you are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predict will not happen. I wonder how much the prophet was losing face. The prophet had spent three days saying the city's going to be destroyed, and then God doesn't destroy the city. Because God's heart is turned by the actions of the people. Their repentance turns God's heart to one of his... and this is what we're defining this morning, church family, where his nature is. His nature is slow to anger, abounding in love. Jonah knows it. Jonah ran away because he knew there was a risk. God wouldn't destroy the Ninevites, and he wanted them dead. He thought, if I nick off, he won't be able to forgive them, because there's a half a chance, even if I go and tell this, they might actually change their minds and get forgiven by God. I don't want them to be forgiven. That's how, actually, to be fair... As it were, the, um, the, the antagonist of this story isn't the Ninevites, it's Jonah. Like, Jonah's the antagonist, isn't he? He's the problem in this story. It's not the Ninevites. Actually, challenged about their behavior, they change. And God, and God in his grace and mercy, and let's note, this is the nature of God. He overflows, even after all the evil they've been doing, even after all their behavior, even after everything they've been up to, even though they're the mortal enemies of his chosen people, even though they've, they've attacked and they've killed and they've destroyed and they've pillaged and all they've done, and the king and all the nation uh, turn around and say, you know what? We're wrong. We're wrong. And they genuinely, and God knows the heart, this wasn't just an act of, I'm going to sit in some burlap, which is like a rough, you know, fabric cloth that was used for making bags and stuff, basically, for sacks and some ashes. You know, I'm not just doing this because it looks good. I am genuinely remorseful, and it turns the heart of God. Now, there's something that we say often, isn't it, that God's word does not go out void. And God had said to Jonah, go and preach, go and say this message in 40 days the, uh, the city will be destroyed. Does that mean God's word is void because he didn't destroy the city? Can God's heart be changed? Can God take back something that he's spoken? Here's what I think, and, I, and I'll, I'll lay this one out to you. Was the city still radically transformed? Could we argue that it was destroyed from what it was and rebirthed into something new? Did the word of the prophet still come true? 
not in the sense of every rock and, and house was flattened and every person killed, because we can take that to be destroyed, but was the destruction of evil, did it take place? Was evil destroyed in that place? Was life released? Was death and destruction taken out? Was life restored and put in? And I'll, you know, I think there's a, yeah, have your thoughts on how you feel on that one. But I wonder if the word of the Lord still accomplished exactly what it intended to accomplish. And God always knew, and to be fair to Jonah, he knew also. Jonah knew, Jonah as a prophet, knew the nature of God. Actually, the attitude problem here was Jonah, right? Jonah's got the attitude problem. But he knew the nature of God. He knew this was a risk. God, I know you're slow to anger. I know you're abounding in love. And even though this is our mortal enemies, you might still do something I don't want you to do. And I'm, an, I'm afraid to go there, and I'm prepared to even kill myself, to say to the sailors, throw me in the sea, let me die, to avoid this, this thing. Amazing, isn't it? And this is, yet the, this is the prophet, the man of God, yeah, and his attitude. All right, there's one. Let's have a look at another. Jonah and Nineveh are both shown amazing patience and grace by God's heart. In fairness, the story of God even using Jonah just so shows the nature of God, his grace and mercy to Jonah to still save him, to still keep pointing him back, to still say, I've asked you to go. At any point, you could have gone, nah, scrap it, I'll get another prophet. Nah, not using you, I'll go somewhere else. Nah, I'll do it myself. Nah, I'll just flatten the city. He could have lots of different things he could have done. But this interaction of God with people, this interaction with God with the prophets, interaction with God with the king and the people of Nineveh, you just see his heart flowing out and his willingness to work with even the ignorant and the grumpy and the whingy and still see his love fall through and his, and his, and his blessings go through. Let's have a look at another. Abraham and Isaac, Genesis chapter 2, uh, verse 9 to 18, if you want to find it in, in your Bibles. Abraham's been promised this miracle son. Abraham is a very old man. Sarah is beyond childbearing, but the miraculous happens, and Isaac is born. And God has promised over and over again that Isaac will be not only a promise of this son to him, but also the promise of his inheritance and his future, and that great things will come through the nation that will be birthed out of uh, Abraham. So lots of promises have been spoken over Abraham, and yet we find this position where God says to Abraham, take your son, take uh, some wood for an offering, head off into the mountains, and actually these are the mountains where ultimately Jerusalem would eventually be established. It's the mountains of Moriah at this time that becomes part of that land, of the land of Israel. Go off into the mountains and go and sacrifice your son to me. He gives him three days to ponder about it, doesn't he? Sends him off with plenty of time in this journey to amanar about whether or not he wants to do this or, or to turn away and turn back, but he holds the course he trusts the nature of the God that he knows, that God could raise up Isaac again. If not Isaac, he can raise up another son for him. Yet this is the beloved one. This is the son of an, to an old man. This is the child that he never expected by the, by the mother that he loves. And he's just, you can imagine the overflowing heart that um, uh, 
Abraham has for this boy, for this relationship that he's got. It's the apple of his eye. It's the joy of his morning. It's the smile on his face, this relationship with this son. And he knows it's the promise as well, and it's the fulfillment of the goodness of God to him. He's looking at the goodness of God, and he's looking at his son, and he's looking at this joy and this, this fun and this laughter. And then God says, go and sacrifice him to me. Go and be brave. Imagine that. Parents, imagine that. Yeah? Incredible. And yet he goes, he's faithful to go. And what do we find in the story, of course? Verse 15 to 18. The angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says. So he calls him and says, he says, stop, don't do it, don't hurt the boy, for I know that you've truly, um, uh, you've not withheld anything from me, even your son, your only son. That's verse 12. And then we get to this bit, verse 15. The angel of the Lord calls to Abraham and says, this is what the Lord says, because you've obeyed me, not withheld your, only, your son, your only son, I swear by my own name, I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number like the stars in the sky and the sands of the seashore. And your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies. And through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All because you've obeyed me. The overflowing nature of God is not only did he test Abraham, let's be fair, and prove you know, that Abraham actually would honor God with all things, uh, even the son that was his beloved, but actually that he had a greater, uh, a greater overflow of himself, a promise about the lineage of um, Abraham to Isaac to Jacob all the way down that was going to be so significant that he wanted to release something, but to release it first, it almost had to die and be reset. It had to be done in this pattern of, of saying, uh, it's all in me, for God to say, it's not about you, it's about me and my goodness. And actually, if you're even willing to sacrifice it for me, then I can overflow out of this situation. And so Abraham unknowingly, in his willingness to be obedient, releases an even greater blessing. Okay, In his obedience to be obedient, even to something very painful, he releases an even greater blessing. Up to this point, Lots of words about being a mighty nation, you're going to be a big people. All of a sudden, we get this last sentence, verse 18. And through your descendants, all the nations will be blessed on the earth, all because you've obeyed me. I mean, that you've obeyed me, so I'm now going to overflow with my lavishness through you as a people, through your descendants. And ultimately, we know that actually in the lineage of this relationship of, of father and son here, in the lineage, we get to David the king, to David's line, which gets to, um, to uh, Jesus, who is um, uh, of David's household um, in his lineage back to, through his father, his earthly father. And so the blessing of all the nations that's going to come in Jesus is wrapped up in this moment, isn't it, in history, where Abraham has been incredibly faithful to God. But it's an overflow of God again. It's an overflow of God's nature. It was Abraham having that faith to trust God, that you can, whatever happens here, Father God, you can you know, it's one thing to provide the ram. He provides an alternative sacrifice, and they're still able to sacrifice the Lord and crack on. That's awesome. But it's this knowing in Abraham's heart that you are the God who could raise up another child, who could raise up my son from dead, death, if that's what you choose to do, who could find an alternative way to still fulfill the promises that you've spoken over me. I trust you wholeheartedly and fully, and out of that relationship comes even greater fulfilling and greater blessing and a greater story that goes through into our history. Let's do one more. 
David, uh, the king, who is in that lineage as we've just spoken about, uh, there's a good chunk of the Psalms that are written by King David. He was a poet. Uh, he was a worshipful uh, man. Uh, he had a gift uh, to play the harp, um, which we see used through Scripture. Uh, but also, David had a, a, an intimate relationship with God, both in the trial and in the challenge, and getting it right and getting it wrong. But he also witnessed and firsthand experienced the goodness of God. And so he's speaking out of a position and writing out of a position of what he's seen, not just, I can imagine my God is good, but I have seen my God do these things. I have seen him fulfill these things. I've seen him raise people up. I've seen him restore. I've seen him save. And so he writes about him uh, with that heart. So let's pick a bit of this up in Psalm 68. I'm going to read verse 5 to 13, and then I'm going to skip to 18 to 20, which is on your, uh, a little bit of that is on your screens uh, here this morning. King David writes this, you're a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. This is God whose dwelling is holy. God places the lonely in families. He sets prisoners free and gives them joy. He makes the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. Oh God, when you led your people out of Egypt, when you marched through the dry wasteland, the earth trembled and the heavens poured down rain before you the God of Sinai, before you, the God of Israel. You sent abundant rain, God, to refresh the weary land. There your people finally settled, and with bountiful harvest, O God, you provided for your needy people. Verse 11, the Lord gives the word, and great armies bring good news. The enemy kings and their armies flee, while the women of Israel divide the plunder. Even those who lived among the sheepfolds found treasures, doves with wings of silver and feathers of gold. And then verse 18, when you ascended to the heights, you led crowds of captives. You received gifts from the people, even those who rebelled against you. Now the Lord God will live amongst us there. And we get to this statement. Praise the Lord. Praise God, our Savior. For each day he carries us in his arms. Our God is a God who saves. The sovereign Lord who rescues us from death. David's experience was seeing God do incredible, miraculous things, mostly in the physical. Let's be, a lot of time it was literally saving people out of situations where there was a king coming against them. It was battles that they won, that they probably shouldn't have won, but God's grace and mercy brought their victory, that God's protection over the nation. But he also witnessed it in the small things, in prisoners finding hope and life and becoming set free in who they uh, in their character when they discovered uh, an intimacy with God in seeing the lost and the broken protected by God in a special way that God cared about the widows and the orphans he'd written it into law about that and David had to uh, verse that and speak that and challenge the people about that and so we've got this nature of God being exampled out but David seeing it firsthand and writing about it not just from a sort of like a well, it'd be nice if he did, sort of God, but actually I've seen him do this. I bear testimony to the God that I know, that I have witnessed do these incredible things in incredible people's lives. And as the king, I've been able to witness him do these amazing things. And out of that, I'm able to say, our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who saves. Our God is a God who saves. It's in his nature to save. It's in his nature to see the weak and the broken and the lost and to rescue them. It's in his nature. And actually, we get uh, one of the names of God. And it's not one I'd, I'd said I've, I'd have noticed. It's probably only referenced by David. I think it's also in um, 
Psalm 18, where this might actually be in the Hebrew, and it's El Moshah. If I can say that, Moshah, I'm going to say, El Moshah, I'm going to go. And it means the God who saves. You know, we've got Elohim, and there's other names for God that we knew, but this is one that I'd say I wasn't so aware of. Actually, a name for God, a name for his nature. All the names of God essentially describe an asset, don't they, or a facet of him. It's uh, the God who provides, it's the God of grace, it's the God of mercy, it's the God of love. There's names about God that we find in the, in the Bible because somebody had an experience of God, got a revelation of God, and then named that, that facet of God as something that was of value to recognize more of him. And the more of those that happen, the greater we get an understanding of who he is and his character. And David has this one. He probably has others, to be fair, but this is certainly one that I can't say I'd, I'd noticed before. The God who saves he names him the God who saves. This is in his character. It's in his nature. Because why? Because God is love. And love loves to rescue. Love loves to win back. Love loves to restore. Love loves to build up. Love loves to have grace and mercy. Love loves to forgive. It's what love does, isn't it? God is love. And so we see this in David's experience of God as he writes this psalm. It's not just a hypothetical thing, but a real thing. It's a death to, death to life thing. It's a lost to found, a hopeless to hope-filled. David can write, our God is God who saves, with conviction and truth, and name God El Mashah, the God who saves. I've got one more bit of scripture this morning, um, which is Isaiah 43. And Isaiah, one of the major prophets, we'll give him his title, because his book is bigger. He also says quite a lot of good stuff. Um, uh, in Isaiah 43, there's a, just an absolute blessing of uh, a statement that God makes. This is God speaking through the prophet. And so the prophet is saying, this is what God is saying. This isn't the prophet's words, this is God's words through the prophet. So essentially we've got God talking about himself in this one. God saying, this is me and sort of evidencing himself out, and the prophet is, um, is speaking these words. And I'm going to read pretty much all of uh, 43, because it's all good, but we're going to pick out um, a couple of pieces, which I'll have up on the screen for you as well. But I'll read this, because follow along, church family. But now, O Jacob, listen to the Lord who created you. O Israel, the one who formed you, says, so this is God speaking, don't be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you go through deep waters, I will be there. When you go through uh, rivers of difficulty, you will not drown. When you walk through fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I gave Egypt as a ransom for your freedom. I gave Ethiopia and Seba in your place. Others were given in exchange for you. I traded their lives for yours because you are precious to me. Uh, you are honored and I love you. Do not be afraid from when I am with you. I will gather you and your children from east and west. I will say to the north and the south, bring my sons and my daughters back to Israel from the distant corners of the earth. Bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. Bring out of the people who have eyes that are blind, who have ears but are deaf. Gather the nations together. Assemble the peoples of the world. Which of their idols has ever foretold such things? Which can predict what will happen tomorrow? 
there are the wildernesses of such predictions. Where are the witnesses of such predictions? Sorry, Who could testify that uh, they spoke the truth? But you are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You're my servants. You have chosen to know me, chosen to believe in me, and understand that I alone am God. There is no other God. There never has been. There never will be. Yes, I, yes, I am the Lord, and there is no other Savior. First, I predicted your rescue, and then I saved you and proclaimed it to the world. No foreign God has ever done this. You are witnesses that I am the only God, says the Lord. From eternity to eternity, I am God. No one can snatch anyone out of my hand. No one can undo what I have done. God, in his own words, describes himself. And I think there's a couple of pieces that I think that's one bit on there. Yeah, there we go. When you go through the deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, I will not let you drown. When you walk through fire of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One, your Savior. It's not that you don't go through the trial and the challenge. It's that you never go through it alone. You never do not have the saving of God by your side. It is never more than you can bear. It's never more than will overtake you. You're going to get wet in the river, but you're not going to drown. You're going to feel the heat of the fire, but you're not going to get burned up. It's, it's, a, it's a definite difference to the, I never want to get wet, I never want to get hot, right? I never want to get wet, I never want to get hot, doesn't grow in faith, doesn't take risks for God, doesn't go sometimes where he says go, go and sacrifice your son to me, is getting very hot and very wet. Do you know what I'm saying, church? You know you're going to get very hot and very wet. But it's, I am trusting you, God, in this situation, so I'm going to go. And what does he do? He saves. He saves. I can imagine Abraham's head was getting steamed with these three days to go up the mountain, right, and think about, I'm sacrificing my son, I'm sacrificing my son, I'm sacrificing my son. But God is there in it going, no, it's never going to happen. I just needed to know because I've got more for you. I've got more for your lineage. I've got more blessing for you. And there is greater to come, but that greater to come comes because I've walked by your side. You've let me be with you in these situations. You haven't denied me my privilege to save. He gets the awesome privilege to save. It's, it's in his nature. It's in his character. Allow him to do it, church. Allow him to walk with you in all situations and to save. Allow him to be the God who does that. And then verse 11, yes, I, I am the Lord. There is no other Savior. And this is mind-boggling, right? First, I predicted, okay, that I'm going to rescue you. How often in your situation is it a prophetic word or a word of knowledge or a scripture that has told you first what's going to happen to get you out of that situation? Because this is the God that we serve, right? He can predict what's going to happen. So he can predict your salvation before your salvation has happened. Some of you in this room are sitting on prophetic words that have not yet fulfilled, and they are part of the saving for your life. They're part of things that are going to see you into release and into freedom, but they haven't happened yet. But he's predicted them. Yeah, He's predicted them and let you know about it to give you the, the, the potential, the opportunity to walk in faith steps towards what God has said. I'm going to trust God that he's spoken over my life He's given me a prophetic word or a piece of scripture that I believe is from him, and I'm going to walk in that until I see it happen. But it's his word to me, so I know it's truth. First, I predicted your rescue. Then I saved you. Then he does it. And then I proclaimed it to the world. And then he took the glory. He took the glory about it. How often do we, ha- we hear a prophetic thing, 
We see it fulfilled. And then what do we want to do, church family? We want to praise God. We want to give him the glory. We want to raise him up. We want to go, you know what? He said he was going to heal me. Then I got the healing. Now I want to just scream about it. I want to scream about what he's done in my life. I want to tell the world. And God's like that. It's just in his nature. I want to proclaim it to the world. No other God has ever done this. And you're witnesses to this. Yeah, you're witnesses to this church. You're witnesses to the experiences that you have in God to take those and blow them up and let the world know about them. And God says, this is what I do. Why would Jesus do anything different? Why would we, the church, do anything different? We're going to pattern after our Father. Let's listen to his promises for the situations that are difficult. Let's let him walk with us in those difficult situations. Let him be our Savior. Lean into him, not into yourself. Don't rely on the world, don't rely on the government, don't rely on other things, don't rely on the lies and the, and the things that are said around you. Trust God, even when it doesn't seem possible. Trust him. He's never going to let you burn. He's never going to let you drown. He's always going to be there in those situations. And not only may he predict the rescue, he will fulfill the rescue, and then we can shout about the rescue. Amen? Because the goodness of God, isn't it good? It's so good. This is who he is. Okay, let's round up from this morning. I wrote um, a little set of questions based on, I think, sort of each of these, because I thought it was, there were things like you could pick out from each of these stories this morning. So, do we think like Jonah, holding back the saving grace? Let me de- describe that. You know the grace of God in you. You know the salvation you know the healing, you know the restoration, you know what God's done. But I think sometimes we can be Jonas. We don't want to tell other people. We don't think some other people deserve to gain God's grace and mercy. We don't want to tell people that we don't like. Maybe they're a different nation, maybe they're a different tribe, maybe they're a different tongue, maybe they're just that work colleague who's really annoying, okay? And we don't want to witness to. But God is prompting our hearts and saying, be like me, love, grace, mercy, Share my truth. Share my gospel good news. Share it. Yeah, but if, what if they come to you, God? Ah, I don't want them to come to you. Like, is that ever there? Is that ever in your heart? Is that ever something you've ever said? That person really hurt me. I don't want to forgive them, and I don't want you to forgive them, God, either. Just asking. Just, have you ever done it? Like, oh, I'll forgive them a bit, Lord, but make sure you punish them in hell, Yeah. Like, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, but I'm not telling them about the gospel. I'll forgive them, but I'm not going to tell them the gospel. I'm not going to give them the opportunity for an eternity in heaven. I'm not, mm, I don't want to do that. Like, come on, church. Like, is there a bit of that in us? Okay, this morning, is there some apologizing? Is there a bit of closet cleaning with the Lord? Father God, I never want to not look at my enemies and love them. I never not want to feed my enemy, clothe my enemy, help my enemy, share the gospel with my enemy. Because that's what you did. When we were far away from you and we hated you and we nailed you to a cross, you loved us and took our sins. Yeah? When we were far away, he came and found us. Let's make sure we get that one right. Do we know uh, we carry the same goodness of God in our lives like Abraham? Do you know that the goodness of God is in you? Do you know you're carrying the promises of God? The fulfillment of God is in you. Do you know it's with you all the time? That God, Abraham walked into a situation, know that God had a way to make it right. 
God said, kill my son, my only son, sacrifice him to me, but I know God can turn this around. I just know he can. I know what he's promised. I know what he's said. I know even though he's asking me to give it all back to him, I know he can still fulfill it. Do you carry that, that saving grace? Do you know that God, whatever, I've been building up a business and I've felt God say to me, sell it or give it away for nothing. But God, you've promised to me that I will find myself in a position where I'm going to be speaking to uh, business people. And, but if I don't have a business, I won't be able to get into that, the room. I won't be able to be, you've told me I'm going to be a witness to men and women of authority and power. And you, you, you led me to this business. You prophesied I'd start this business. And I'm almost at the door to these people to share the gospel with them, that you've been taking me down a journey. And you've suddenly turned around and said, give the business away. Can you trust him? Can you trust him that there's something else going to happen? Can you trust him that he's going to lift up another way? Can you trust him that at the last minute he's going to say, it's all right, actually, I've got a, I'm, I just wanted to check. It wasn't all about the business. I wanted to check where your heart was at. I wanted to check in with you. Good, great, here's the door, open. Go and preach my word. Go and share with these business men and women who are going to do great things for the kingdom. You know, where are we at with those? Do we see God's goodness like David and testify? Do you look around and see the goodness of God? Do you raise a testimony? Do you raise it up for your own life? Do you speak it into others? God's done that. God's done that. Have you heard about what God's done recently? Have you talked about it? Have you shared about it? Are you, are you seeing the goodness of God so that you can have confidence in who he is? I think sometimes we let life and the world overwhelm us, don't we? And all we see are the negatives, the negatives, the negatives, the negatives, the negatives. And we stop we start applying those negatives to God must have done that, God must have done that, God must have done that, God allowed that, God didn't stop that, God didn't do this, God didn't do that, rather than looking at where we've let him in to actually bring restoration and the healing and the deliverance and the freedom and, and making sure that we're checking in with our hearts about how we see it, yeah? Do we see God's goodness like David? Do we testify it? And do we know God is with us in all circumstances to save, that he predicts, that he promises, and that he proclaims? Yeah, as he says in Isaiah, he's going to predict your salvation and promise it and do it, complete it, and he's going to proclaim your salvation as well. He's going to have joy with you and be able to say, this is what God did in my life. He did this. I didn't do this. He did this because he is the God who saves. Will you stand, church family? Um, if the worship band want to come up, let's just take a minute to pray. I've got a little statement that I wrote. I'm going to read it out. Hopefully this will make a little bit of sense. We carry the Spirit of God in us as Christians. Do we not? Filled with the Spirit of God. Yes? It's worth us being aware that in our new nature in Christ, as we go about on this earth, it's now empowered by the nature of God. This will seem strange at first, but we should become more and more aware that we are burdened to see people saved. You carry the spirit of a God who saves, in your spirit, more and more should be a recognition that you want to see injustice dealt with, that you want to see people lifted up out of poverty, you want to see people set free from their, their sickness and diseases, you want to see people restored, that actually you start to carry that character. Don't be surprised, church family. To some of us, like, you know, from our place of ignorance or our place of stubbornness or our place of selfishness, as we come into Christ, it's quite a revelation to start to think of others more than ourselves, to start to love on people greater than maybe we even give ourselves grace for sometimes. 
but to actively and proactively be in the business of saving. If God is in the business of saving, his church is in the business of saving. It'll look a bit different for everyone. For you, it might just be having grace and mercy sometimes for yourself, to allow yourself to be saved, to release things over yourself, yeah? Sometimes that may be where the starting place is. For some of you, it is a genuine passion to see a nation, a whole nation come to Christ. You have been burdened with something in your spirit for a people group, an age group, for the over 70s, the under 7s. There's something in you that the spirit is birthing in you and exciting in you, and you want to see God break out in these people. You want to see him break out in the community. You want to see him break out in the, in the protection of this planet, in the saving grace of our, of, our, of our homes and our lives and our society. You want to see it break out in justice, in the law, in politics you want to see the saving grace of God in these places and you're carrying that and you should be because it's in his nature it's in his nature as the Old Testament prophets and people witness as they experience as Jesus says I have come to give them life and life to the full I've come to explode in you like a river that overflows yeah amen it's a fresh water it's a living life in God the spirit bubbles up inside of you be aware. How often is it just simply we're not listening? Be aware, church family. What this morning is God reminding you, I want you to be my story of saving grace into that situation, into that family that lives next door to you, into that work colleague you don't like. Yeah? God has got this for you this morning. We want to save uh, from evil. We want to save from injustice. We want to save from destitution. We want to save from abuse. We want to save from hopelessness. Save from despair. Save from sin. Save from physical death. Save from spiritual death. And saved into life. Saved into freedom. Saved into peace. Saved into relationship. Saved into meaning. Saved into hope. Saved into joy. Saved into love. We want to be a people that save into the love of God. Father God, this morning, we just stand here before you, Father God, and to some extent we recognize our failings and our shortfalls. But Father God, more than anything, this morning we recognize that actually there's a gift that's been given to us. It's your Holy Spirit. He's going to walk with us into all things. He's going to reveal all truth in us. And he's going to carry the nature of God in us and reveal the nature of God in us and make us more like Christ. Christ who was willing to die on the cross to save people who hadn't yet said yes. Christ who was willing to give his life for those that hated him and were disgusted by him and loathed him. Christ who was willing to die for a people that didn't even want him, didn't want relationship with him. But yet he still went there. He was still obedient to the cross, still obedient to death. In his innocence, he was able to bring the restoration. He was able to take our sin upon himself and bring our restoration. Thank you, Father God, that our wholeness and our purity and our restoration is only because of the goodness of Christ. It's only because Christ exampled you, Father God, because he is our saving grace. And Lord Jesus, we accept this morning your spirit. The spirit of Christ now lives with us. We are the temples. Father God, would you raise up that revelation that we are here to save with you. We're here to walk with you into seeing salvation, into seeing restoration, into seeing deliverance, 
into seeing forgiveness. Let us give it away freely as we have freely received. Amen, church? Amen. Fantastic.